Welcome to Let's Talk FCA, presented by Crawl and Mooring. We are your co-hosts, Jason Crawford and Mona Lombardo, bringing you the latest developments with the False Claims Act. On today's episode, we're going to discuss some of the unique considerations for settling and mediating FCA cases. We're excited to have Steve Altman as our guest today. Steve is a principal at Altman Dispute Resolution Services, where among his service offerings, he provides mediation, case evaluation, and settlement consultation services. Over his career, Steve has mediated over 1,500 matters and has a unique depth of experience with the False Claims Act, having litigated and supervised FCA cases while serving at the Department of Justice for 27 years. While at DOJ, Steve designed and conducted FCA trainings for assistant U.S. attorneys across the country and co-authored the Civil Division's Alternative Dispute Resolution Policy. And last but not least, Steve is an award-winning adjunct professor at the Georgetown University Law Center, where I was fortunate to take his popular negotiation and mediation course. Given his extensive experience, we could think of no better guest to discuss with us considerations for resolving FCA cases. Thank you for joining us, Steve. Thank you. And welcome, Steve. We're glad to have you here today. As many of our listeners know, a large percentage of FCA cases and investigations are resolved through settlement. So from the defendant's perspective, the risk of trouble damages and statutory penalties creates a strong incentive to settle. And for relators, receiving their share of a settlement early in the litigation may be preferable to waiting years only to risk walking away with nothing. And we've seen the government repeatedly come away with extremely large recoveries by settling cases across a whole range of So for instance, in January, 2019, a pathology laboratory agreed to pay $63.5 million to settle allegations that it violated the FCA by engaging in improper financial relationships with referring physicians under the anti-kickback statute and the Stark law. And last March, a private university in North Carolina agreed to pay the government $112.5 million to resolve allegations that it violated the FCA by submitting applications and progress reports that contained purportedly falsified research on federal grants to the National Institutes of Health and to the Environmental Protection Agency. Notably, whistleblowers had initiated each of these larger covering matters. So Steve, to help set the stage for listeners, who have not been involved in an FCA settlement, describe for us the criteria that DOJ typically considers when settling FCA cases. Let me start with sort of an official answer, a formal answer, and that was given and is still consistent by Assistant Attorney General McCallum some years ago in which he testified on the Hill that the settlement is based on litigation risk and developing precedent. And in addition, he recognized that some settlements arrive from considering the financial condition of the defendant. The goal, like any plaintiff, is to maximize the financial recovery of of the client, the treasury in this case, while being cognizant of being consistent uh, amongst defendants in order to be fair and and recognize the priorities of client agencies. There were times when a, a given agency will be emphasizing a message they want to send to clean up housing projects. Uh, So that may take an extra emphasis during some period of time. So in that regard, DOJ makes the decision, then receives a recommendation from the agency. Uh, Unlike private practice, here the lawyers, DOJ, has the authority whether or not to accept the settlement, but they only do it after asking the affected agency for their opinion on the merits of the settlement. As far as the amount is concerned, as I said, it's a fairly traditional litigation risk analysis. 
Sometimes there's risk on how much the damages are. Certainly, there's oftentimes risk on liability. There are also, under the False Claims Act, penalties. Traditionally, in non-Medicare, non-healthcare matters, oftentimes the number of penalties or an amount representing the penalties is bargained away in the settlement process. Over the last dozen years, we've seen in healthcare cases where the number of penalties is so significant that sometimes those are also considered in determining the ultimate number at which the case will settle. Thanks, Steve. When settling cases, we often explain to clients that certain terms are included in every settlement agreement, but that there are other terms that can be negotiated. Certainly, the determination of single damages and the multiplier are main focus of most negotiations. But in your experience, what are some of the other common sticking points? Well, the most important, it goes for probably any case you're settling, is for the defendant to determine uh, before the amount of money is discussed, what's being settled? What is the scope of the release? And the Department of Justice has severe limits on both the causes of action they're going to release and on the conduct being covered by the release. And those things have to be negotiated. For example, the causes of action will not resolve SEC matters, will not resolve tax matters, will not resolve warranty matters. And probably even more important, the scope of the release is defined by what the agreement will call the covered conduct. And here, where the department has investigated multiple allegations against a defendant, it's very important to determine which of those allegations are going to be within the covered conduct. As a general rule, the Department of Justice will only include those allegations upon which they are receiving money in the settlement. Let me emphasize that for a second. If there are three separate allegations, maybe a relator has brought them, and then the Department of Justice investigates all three, finds with A and B, there's some merit, they negotiated a resolution. Allegation C, they have investigated and determined there's no merit but they will not give a release. They will not include that in the covered conduct because no money is being paid in that regard. In a case in which a relator has brought multiple claims, if the government intervenes in just some of them and settles just those, they will not give releases on those issues that were not the subject of the intervention. You can get a release from the relator on those issues. You can get a dismissal of those issues, but the dismissal would not be with prejudice against the United States. In addition, the United States has several requirements that are in all of their settlement agreements and several items that they will not agree to. Uh, For instance, they will not agree to include a discussion of the level of cooperation provided by the defendant. They will not agree to sharing or co-writing a press release. They will insist upon uh, provisions that say that this is not influenced tax liability. There's tax liability, that is, it's tax neutral. Secondly, that there has to be what they refer to as the cost clause, which says that a government contractor can't assign expenses associated with the investigation and settlement of the Quitam case into its other contracts or overhead and thus pass that those costs back to the government. And I think we've seen now 
since the passage of the tax law at the end of 2017 that the department is increasingly designating which portion of the settlement is restitution, yes. which is the only portion that can be deducted. That's true. That is That has been a, a recent change. I think there's been some pressure from the IRS on DOJ to, to provide that. And what about the role of a cold comfort letter in this process? The cold comfort letter arises when there may be, as I mentioned, allegations that were surfaced, maybe they were investigated, maybe they weren't, and the defendant is concerned they're not getting a release on those allegations, do they get any protection? And occasionally, a the main justice and or a U.S. attorney's office, and oftentimes they have to get together on this, will give a cold comfort letter that merely says that there is no current intention of pursuing an investigation or pursuing a False Claims Act case on a particular issue. It doesn't mean that 48 hours from now, that could change, but at the date of the letter, and then you have to also recognize what offices you're representing. Does it mean there are no criminal investigations? Does it mean there are no investigations at any U.S. attorney's office or just no investigations at Maine Justice? Thanks, Steve. So, as you know, the vast majority of FCA cases these days are, in fact, brought by Ketam relators. In your experience, how does the settlement dynamic change in those cases in which the government intervenes versus the ones that it declines? If the government intervenes, you can expect that the government uh, attorneys are going to be in charge of the litigation and in charge of the negotiation of a settlement of the case. The participation of the relator will depend usually on the importance of the relator as a witness, how helpful the relator will be to the negotiation process, and frankly, the relationship between relator's counsel and government counsel and how well they work together. In a declined case, obviously the relator is leading the negotiation. Uh, nevertheless, we have to separate out a couple things here. There are declinations because the government has run out of time to make its decision. Oftentimes, the judge will say, this is a drop-dead date. The department will say, well, we're still investigating it, but I guess at this point, the case, the relator will have to move forward as if we have not intervened. In those cases, and even in some cases that are just outright declined, DOJ may change its mind. So they keep an eye on the case. They may continue to investigate. They may participate in the negotiation. I have had on three or four occasions, mediated declined cases in which the Department of Justice sent an AUSA or, or a Maine Justice trial attorney. I have generally found them very helpful toward the resolution when they do participate. Here, too, it's important, I think, for both relators and for defendants to see if they can keep the Department of Justice involved at some level in the settlement process. First, uh, because DOJ has to approve any settlement. So if it's a declined case, you want to make sure that DOJ is on board, and that process can take several months. So if they're involved or at least aware of and following the settlement negotiations, you can save a good deal of time, and you can get a sense of will this get approved. Also in that regard, you have to recognize that the government lawyers are <laughs> quite overworked, and they may or may not want to 
participate. Some of them will say, don't bother me. Just send me a letter when you get this deal done. And others will say, yeah, I'm interested in this case. Keep me informed. That's kind of hit or miss, uh, but it's another thing you, you really should know. You should also know at what level of authority does the settlement have to get approved. You might want to check on these numbers, but I believe currently it's $10 million. If the single damages are less than $10 million, the U.S. Attorney's Office has the authority to approve the settlement. If it's more than $10 million, it's going to have to go to Maine Justice for approval. And obviously, that's going to add another layer and, and, and more time. So continuing to speak to the declined cases where the agreement is being negotiated between the defendant and a relator, what are the terms that the government typically would be most interested in? And, and what might cause the government to reject the terms of the settlement? Let me say that generally speaking, when a, the government declines a case, they traditionally send a letter, the same letter, to both defense counsel and relators counsel that describes both the approval process, the fact that the government still has to approve any settlement, and describes some of the terms they will require to be in an agreement. I do understand that government counsel have been fairly careless lately in, in sending these letters out, and I, I encourage both Relators Council and Defense Council to ask for the letter. It's a standard letter, uh, hasn't changed much over the years. It's very informative, and it gives you uh, some important guidance. The letter will contain the language they want about taxes, the language, the cost clause, and other requirements. Generally speaking, the department will leave alone the negotiation over fees between Relators Council and the defense. However, they will take a look if there is an H claim, a retaliation claim, or some type of employment or, or other common law claim that's being settled between the relator and the defense. That DOJ will take a look at just to make sure that money, they don't feel that money is being shifted from the False Claims Act settlement where the relator will get 25 to 30 percent into a common law or H claim in which they'll be getting 100 percent. So you can see the incentive there and DOJ wants a sense that that's not happening. And that's another reason to keep DOJ sort of in the loop as you continue to negotiate to give them a comfort level that that's going to be okay. So our firm has had experience in recent years with ability to pay settlements where the DOJ settles a case for less than the amount of the False Claims Act loss due to the defendant's lack of financial resources. Now, in theory, one might think that ability to pay cases would be easier to settle since the dollar amounts are generally lower, but in practice, they can be more complicated to resolve. What challenges have you encountered in settling ability to pay cases? The challenge is agreeing just what it says on what's the ability to pay. DOJ will do a thorough examination of the defendant's finances, uh, a rather intrusive examination of defendant's finances. And there's great potential for a disagreement over how much can be paid, how fast it can be paid, what kind of security can be used to protect payments, whether or not there'll be an interest rate applied, and how many years out will the government agree to stagger the payments. That's a lot to negotiate. I have seen criticism of the civil division's analysis in some of these cases, which is understandable. The parties are going to disagree on, you know, they have opposite incentives to determine what the defendant can afford. I will add that only in 
extreme circumstances where the defendant can't afford virtually any payment, will the government consider an in-kind payment? In-kind being maybe providing the service or the product at a discount in the future, doing warranty work for free where the warranty no longer applies, uh, that kind of, that, that interestingly benefits the agency. It's not uncommon that all or much of the money paid in a False Claims Act settlement does not go to the impacted agency. It just goes back to the Treasury. This kind of in-kind settlement actually does help the agency's budget in the future. Nevertheless, as I say, DOJ does this very rarely and only in extreme circumstances. Thanks, Steve. So on the defense side, companies will often perform a cost-benefit analysis, weighing the litigation risk and the expense of taking an FCA case through summary judgment or trial. Based on your time in government and in your dispute resolution practice, how much does the government weigh the costs of the litigation and the contributions that Relators Council can potentially provide? On the record, I'll say technically, DOJ does not consider the costs of litigation. I think that has to be tempered by the real world, given the large caseload they're working with and the differences from one U.S. Attorney's Office to the next. Occasionally, that may matter. They may consider the benefit of resolving a case, but it's never a formal computation or, and I've never seen it in a memo as a consideration of why a case should be settled. But you also mentioned that what resources the relator brings to the table, and that is relevant. That may be relevant on an intervention decision. Is this a relator that is going to bring resources and substantially help us uh, take this case forward? Again, it doesn't translate into a dollar value of settlement, but it does influence the decision of, yeah, let's go forward with this one. We've got, this is a good team we've put together. Okay, good to know where we can try to separate the rules from the practice. Also, in our experience, we found that resolving matters involving parallel proceedings can present some unique challenges. So from your time at DOJ and in your current counseling practice, are there any lessons learned you can share on negotiating global settlements in matters involving pending civil and criminal actions? And I have to add to that administrative actions as well. When you want a global settlement, you got to look at the, at the whole package. And fortunately or unfortunately, this was one of my areas of expertise. Having lost the U.S. versus Sells case in the Ninth Circuit, two to one, and then we lost it in the Supreme Court, five to four, and it handcuffed our use of grand jury materials and up the ante in the coordination between civil and criminal negotiations. I did a lot of work in this arena. And I have to say that they are separate decisions. The civil decision, whether or not to settle, the criminal decision, whether or not to prosecute, and the agency's decision, usually whether or not to suspend or debar. And they do try to a large extent keep a wall between them. The Department of Justice is not allowed or does not in practice ever recommend when they're considering a settlement, they would not recommend to an agency, oh, don't suspend these people. They're, they're doing a good job in the settlement or don't prosecute this group. They are required to be agnostic on those comments. Nevertheless, when an agency is deciding whether or not they're going to take an administrative remedy and they're aware of a pending settlement or a pending settlement negotiations, they're aware of it and it, it may influence their decision. Similarly, if a prosecutor is aware that restitution was just made or is being made, 
that can influence uh, appropriately, that can influence a prosecutor's decision on whether or not to seek an indictment. So a fairly common practice is twofold. One, if there are parallel proceedings, again, there should be consultation or you may want consultation between the defendant and the agency or the defendant and the prosecutors while the settlement, the civil settlement negotiations are ongoing so that they're not surprised, they're, not, they're, they're kept in the loop and they're ready to talk to you. Secondly, there have been cases where the settlement with DOJ or with an assistant U.S. attorney will be contingent upon resolution of the administrative or the prosecutorial investigations within a certain time limit. And DOJ is generally, has been in the past, I'm not sure current practice, but in the past, open to, yes, we'll give you 90 days to go work things out with the agency. That is an example. Thanks. So switching gears slightly, when you're retained to mediate an FCA case, or I guess really any case, what are the key factors that you consider when reviewing statements from the parties and when you're assessing the value of the case? In the first instance, while I'm interested in the legal and factual arguments, I'm not only interested in reading an advocacy brief. I mean, I'll read briefs in the case, and I very, you know, and obviously I'll research it. But I don't determine that this case is worth X dollars, and and this is where it should settle. Let me give you an example. If the government is demanding ten million dollars and a defendant is offering two million, and in my gut, and I've done a bunch of these and I've tried these, and I think, you know, this is probably worth $4 million. I don't try to get the parties to agree at a $4 million settlement. If the defendant's willing to go to eight, I'll try to get them to eight. If, if the government's willing to take two and a half, I'll try to get them to two and a half. The mediator's role is to make a deal or help the parties make a deal, I should say. And so my evaluation now, I will spend a good deal of time talking about the risks and trying to help each side evaluate their case by looking hard at the risks that they face. But that's not to get them to agree to my number. That's uh, to get the parties to agree to their number. I also want to help both parties kind of understand that the number that they are getting close to or agreeing on is kind of in keeping with normal practice, that this is not out of line for some reason. This is sort of, for these facts, this is a typical range in which a case would show up. So what issues tend to be the biggest roadblocks in resolving FCA cases in mediation? Well, like most cases, this is fairly traditional. Uh, I would say I'll divide this into three pieces, the merits, the emotion, and the terms, the specific terms. On the merits, and I think there's a good place to mention that I often don't see enough what I think is, is good defense work on the damages. Putting the damages at risk, the number, makes it easier for a relator and or the Department of Justice to justify different settlement range. And so that should be taken into consideration. As to emotion, it is surprising. I mean, we're dealing usually with big, sophisticated companies. Nevertheless, they're human and they're run by humans. And these humans are often pretty angry that they're in this situation. Whether they're liable or not, they're emotional and angry. They may be angry at the relator. They may be angry at the government. And you do have to deal with that level of emotion and help people 
get through that. And the third is, as we mentioned earlier, some of the terms, the limited releases, the cost clause, the tax consequences, those terms are hard to swallow for a lot of corporations. And frankly, it's up to their counsel to counsel them early on on the limitations and what to expect because while those issues might be easily negotiated amongst corporations where we've got the government on one side, it makes for a much more limited set of opportunities. When the relators brought uh, 3730H, a retaliation cause of action, in addition to a substantive claim, are there additional issues that you typically try to get the parties to resolve while they're in the same room together? This may depend on whether or not the government has intervened. Settling both the uh, False Claims Act and the retaliation case or some other common law case at the same time may complicate the negotiation, but it may also increase the likelihood that a deal is going to be made. I suggest that defendants should consider the downside of resolving the retaliation claim or common law claim separately and or before they resolve the False Claims Act case. I think it reduces, I think when you've got more things on the table, there are more possibilities to mix and match and find larger solutions. As I said, it may be a little more complicated, but I think it increases the likelihood of an overall deal. For instance, confidentiality. Now, while you're not going to get any confidentiality vis-a-vis the government, you can have a confidential settlement agreement between a defendant and a relator. Confidentiality, I've had more than one mediation that we came to a resolution of everything but the terms of the confidentiality, and it took us a week or two to fuss over what's being confidential, what you can say, to whom, and what are the consequences of a breach. Thanks, Steve. So before we close, do you have any words of advice to listeners as to what you've seen work well in FCA mediations overall? Again, these are a little generic, but they absolutely apply to False Claims Act by way of suggestion. First of all is being persistent and patient. These are complicated cases. Parties, both government, relator, and defense, have all spent a lot of time investigating and convincing themselves of their understanding of the case, of the investigation of the matter. And it takes time to change someone's expectations and takes time to change someone's value of a matter. And so it's not going to happen by sitting down and just making a presentation to the other side and have the other side say, oh my God, you're right. Never mind. We're going to dismiss this case. That's never happened. Just as it's never happened that, that a defendant said, oh, you're right. Here's my checkbook. So there's going to be negotiation and people should be prepared to dig in and and take their time doing it. Secondly, if you're in mediation, make sure that you've educated the other side. And again, I'm talking to all three parts of the triangle here. Make sure that you've educated the other side as much as possible before you get to the mediation. If you've got new information, if you've got an argument that you think is persuasive and you wait until the mediation because you think it's going to be a wonderful surprise. People don't act well to surprises in a mediation. They have to digest it. They have to reconsider it. They have to investigate it. It takes time. If they have told that a week or two ahead of time, now they come to the mediation and sure, they're more prepared. They may have a response. Well, if they have a response, don't you want to know it? So 
prior education is, is very valuable, and I try to encourage it in my mediation practice. Third, bring the right people. I understand that, I mean, we all understand that the government rarely can bring someone with authority, and that's okay. And in fact, I discourage the government attorneys from getting authority and then coming to the mediation, because then their supervisor has been anchored on a number that was arrived at without the benefit of the mediation. And it's hard to move that number after the fact. So while they should talk to their supervisor, they should come in with an open mind and think, all right, what will I recommend at the end of the day? And most trial attorneys' recommendations are going to be accepted. And that's the same thing on the flip side. I often have had defense counsel bring what sounds like the right person, vice president, general counsel. In one case, that was the person that gave the very advice that we were mediating over. That was not the right person to have at that mediation. And I also understand that sometimes someone comes with limited authority. And I will say the same to a large corporate defendant. I say to the government, it's just if you're going to have to come with the position that you're going to make a recommendation, just make that clear up front. And to come with limited authority and then have to go back and get more is not always a productive day. There's some very helpful uh, words of advice. That's all for this episode. We want to thank Steve Altman for joining us today to discuss considerations for resolving FCA disputes. Thank you for having me. If listeners have any follow-up questions on these topics, they should feel free to reach out. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time on Let's Talk FCA. Let's Talk FCA is brought to you by Kroll & Mooring LLP. You can find more information at kroll.com slash letstalkfca. FCA. 